0: For a second scripture reading this morning will sound familiar because we've been reading it several times. You should know it by now, but we're going to do it again. And if you would please stand as I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. If you're following in your pew Bibles, it's on page 1163. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: This is the last time you're going to hear that one from that pulpit for a long time, and you know you're going to miss it. You now, one of my favorite things is when there's a comic book or a movie or a novel that teams up two heroes. Batman and Superman, for example, they're like, they're going to fight. We're like, yeah, they're going to fight for three seconds. Then they're going to team up. And that's what we really want to see. There's even a movie, Ninja Turtles and Batman. I'm not making that up. That's real. I love seeing that because it's just kind of exciting to see worlds collide. And, you know, I think we see that to some degree in 1 Kings 22. This kingdom of Israel has been divided into the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And they haven't really been getting along They've been at each other a little bit here and there. They've they've, uh, fought, skirmished here and there. But in 1 Kings 22, we see them decide to team up to try to accomplish something for their mutual good and benefit. Now, the kings involved are King Ahab in the north, who is a spineless, idolatrous, sinful kind of schlub. And then King Jehoshaphat in the south, who is a good righteous king, but somehow they're going to put those differences aside and they are going to side by side, go and take back the city of Ramoth Gilead, which is one that has been passed back and forth between the Syrians and the Israelites for generations and generations. It's always changing hands. There's always fighting going on there. And they say, let's just, let's team up now. We'll super cop up and we're going to go and take it back once and for all. So after a whole lot of stuff involving prophets and false prophets and false starts, they finally start getting their armies together. And as they're getting their armies together, Ahab takes Jehoshaphat aside and says, I forgot to tell you part of the plan. I am going to dress up like a regular soldier and I'm going to go out in the midst of the army. That's just how I do. I like to get in there. I like to fight. You get in your royal robes looking all awesome like you do and go sit on like a throne being held up on poles by guys, and everyone will be in awe at how amazing you are. And Jehoshaphat says, that's weird, but okay. I'm paraphrasing. It's probably the message or something, I don't know. So they go out, and the reason that Ahab wanted to do this is not because he's brave and not because he was a fighter, but because he was actually a coward. And we read in 1 Kings 22, Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel, Ahab himself. The king of Syria hated him and wanted him dead. And then in 1 Kings 22:32, 32. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. I think we see in here two ideas about spiritual warfare that we can walk away from this series benefiting from. First of all, that there is a tendency to get sidetracked left and right, small and great, all the battles that we could be focusing on where there are other adversaries, human adversaries that we can demonize and say, they're the problem, they're the enemy, I'm going to fight with them. No, listen to the words of the king of Syria and take them to heart. Fight with neither smart nor great, but only with the, the king. We want to go and take the battle right to our true enemy. And Ephesians 6 tells us our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against people, but against principalities, rulers of the darkness of this age. Meaning that we don't want to be fighting against our fellow image bearers. We want to be fighting for them. We want to be freeing them from bondage through preaching the gospel. We want to be fighting against Satan. And that's such a overwhelming idea that many Christians kind of shrink back from it and they find other littler side battles to get themselves kind of stirred up in and take up their energy. But that is not what we're called to do here. In fact, we're admonished against it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And as we've been weeks and weeks in this passage, looking at every piece of the armor of God and every aspect of this battle that we are to wage, I do want to point out What is not here? And what is not here is much of the stuff that is milked from this text when you hear it taught on religious TV or when you read about it in pamphlets and things. There is no mention here about quote-unquote territorial spirits, the idea that because we have what looks almost like a hierarchy of principalities and powers and rulers, that there must be Demons over this city or that city or this state or this place or whatever the case. Like there's a, a patron saint over, you know, knitting. There must be a, a demon over knitting too, which would be like an old, just about retired demon. But like the idea that there, there must be some hierarchy that we've got to reverse engineer. There's even a, a practice in certain circles uh, of trying to divine through the Spirit the names of demons that are in control of the city where we live or the area where we live so that we can rebuke them by name. That sort of thing is completely absent from this text, and I would argue from all of the New Testament. And in fact, those in Ephesus who had a background in the occult would almost certainly have thought of that kind of thing as being pagan, the sort of stuff that they walked away from and left behind. There are also no prayer walks through streets to reclaim them from these supposed territorial spirits to street at a time. I'm not suggesting that those pastors and Christians who have done that were sinning. I'm just saying you didn't get it from this text. If, if a practice to do, to go along, and, and certainly if you're going along just praying for the people who live somewhere, prayer walks and things, great idea. But if we think that what we're doing is fulfilling Ephesians 6 and reclaiming territory from the enemy... That's not what we see, and we do see exactly how to do it, so I think we don't want to get distracted. We don't see any praying to or addressing directly Satan or demons. In fact, even throughout the New Testament, whenever an apostle or Christ himself casts out a demon from a demonized person, they essentially only say two things. Shut up, get out. That's it. It doesn't make anybody look like a a supernatural thriller hero, but it it does get the job done. Jesus would tell the, the demons, even when they shrieked, you are the son of God, shut up, quiet, say nothing. Because there's no reason to listen to the father of lies and his minions who are all liars, who are acting out of their own nature when they lie. Rather, what we want to do is flee back to the cross and listen to our savior. Uh, years ago now, almost seven years ago, I had a real book come out for the first time, meaning it was in like Barnes & Noble and Borders and everything all over the country. And for a very brief window there, I started getting, well, I thought of it as fan mail, uh, at first anyway, a bunch of emails from a bunch of people I'd never met. And I thought, this is really cool at first, until I realized because that book it had as plot elements, demon possession and, and exorcisms and stuff, weird people were emailing me. And a lot of them were asking for advice about this or that happening in their lives. But I started to notice a pattern that I think a, a good majority of people who were reaching out to me along these lines were saying, how do I get in on this? This seems exciting. This demon stuff, I want in. So what's a way to get involved? And I, I kept on, in fact, I had a form letter kind of that I would just tweak a little bit that said, don't seek out this sort of stuff because it seems exciting. Read the scriptures, see what it has to say, stand firm, extinguish the arrows of the devil, and don't get really excited and interested in him. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, preface to the Screw Tape Letters, writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think when I look at the church at large, a big chunk falls into one extreme or the other. Either we don't even believe in the devil and like a literal devil, like a personal devil. No, 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 is silly? Or, oh yeah, devil stuff. You know, you you could say I'm gonna teach on the Holy Spirit on Sunday night and you'd get 30 people. Or you could say I'm gonna teach on the devil on Sunday night and you get 50 people. And that's a problem. So we want to recognize that neither extreme is good. Certainly, as Christians, we don't want to fall into this uh, kind of default atheism about the devil. And by that, I mean, there, there's this notion that there are things in the heavenly realms that are for us, God, there's angels, there's, there's spirit, there's good, but that we, we are kind of intentionally ignorant of anything on the other side, even though... of Jesus' ministry had to do with deliverance and demonic oppression. That's a big chunk. It's just like when people don't want to acknowledge that hell is taught in the New Testament. Jesus taught more about hell than heaven, so you have to acknowledge it and do something with it. Well, the same thing is true of the existence of Satan and demonic spirits, although sophisticated Christians can kind of sub in systemic evils or cultural or social phenomena and say, oh, that is just personifying, uh, you know, human stuff that we need to be fighting against and, and calling them demons. That's more comfortable. It's far less biblical. And I know people who have been overseas doing ministry who can say there's no way to be a Christian in South America or uh, in, in Central Africa. And have that point of view. Either you are going to reject Jesus or you are going to engage in spiritual warfare because that's what happens the moment you embrace him. And I'm not talking about third wave Pentecostal guys, you know, speaking in tongues and swinging from chandeliers in their their service either. I'm talking about even like a Missouri Synod Lutheran academic. I, I mentioned his book, Afraid, and another book, Not Afraid, by Bob Bennett. Uh, this guy has seen some things that will chill you to the bone, and he had no choice but to say, well, how does this fit into my theology? And he found it fits into the scriptures quite easily. This is the, the picture we're given of the unseen world. There is good, there is evil, there is a war, and we are in the midst of it. So, so the apostle here both assumes the existence of our enemy, and very carefully, very intentionally distinguishes it from the world of humanity. So we're not left that option of saying, oh, no, 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 our real enemy is systemic or whatever. Yes, we need to fight against injustice and things, but we need to recognize that behind sin, behind even systemic sin, is something deeper, a spiritual adversary. There are three enemies, in fact, that we have, and we need to recognize that all of them are real. There's the world, and when we say the world, we don't mean it's bad that we live on this ball of rock, circling the sun. No, that's good. That's where God put us. He made it. He was like, I love what I've done with the place. It's good. He put us here. We belong here. Don't think that you don't belong here, that you should be in heaven right now. That's your real home. No, and it's not your ultimate home either. You'll be on earth. You're earthlings for heaven's sake. But the world refers to society apart from God. The wicked system that comes up wherever people apart from Jesus Christ begin to exert their sin natures. And that leads us to the second enemy, the flesh. And by that, we don't mean that it's bad that we're made out of bone and tissue and blood. That's good. That's how God made us. By the way, that is how you will be for eternity if you believe in Jesus, you will be raised from the dead and you won't be a ghost floating around on clouds. You will be a person, flesh and bone. That is good. When we say the flesh as our enemy in the scripture, it means human nature apart from God. Our sin nature. We're born in sin because Adam, our father, sinned as our federal head. And so our flesh is our enemy as well. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies are real and the war is real and people we forget that in the church when times are good, when things come easily. It's easy to say, oh, it's not wartime, it's peacetime. And that is one way that the enemy, in his wiles, in his craftiness, will pull us away from the battle, will neutralize us. To quote Warren Weersby, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And if I quote Warren Weersby, I may as well also quote William Wilberforce who said, when religion is in a state of quiet and prosperity, the soldiers of the church militant will then tend to forget they are at war. Their ardor slackens and their zeal languishes. John John Owen has made an apt comparison. Religion in a state of prosperity is like a colony that has long settled in a strange country. It is gradually assimilated in features, demeanor, and language to the native inhabitants until at length, Every vestige of its distinctiveness has died away. And if we are ever tempted to fall into that situation, we need to pray that God will break us out of it. We need to repent of it. Do you think there are Christians in Afghanistan today who have forgotten that they are at war with the powers of darkness while they run for their lives, flee for their lives, shout to God for deliverance with every breath? When times are easy, though, it's easy to forget. Even though we are constantly being barraged spiritually with what he calls, uh, the apostle Paul calls fiery darts, right? The fiery flaming arrows that the shield of faith is said to extinguish. They are coming at us from every direction while we let our guard down and let our faith flag and let our alertness grow kind of soft and sluggish. I'm talking about lies that come from the devil, temptations. Lusts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I'm talking about uh, thoughts uh, of of despair, of blasphemies that can come into our minds. Have you, as a Christian, ever had a blasphemous thought thought? How the world did that get into my mind? I'm talking about hateful impulses or persistent doubts that may come in. I'm talking about things that, that little flaming arrows may get between the joints of our armor and then threaten to kindle a fire within us and burn us down. This is why we're told to be on guard, to be on guard all the time. Think of a time when King David said, I need a, a capital for my country here, I, uh, God's country. It's Israel there. It was Israel and Judah. Uh, And he said, uh, whoever can get me Jebus, which later was called Jerusalem, that guy can be the chief of my army. Joab, no sooner had the words left his mouth, was running, just running to Jerusalem. And he goes up the water spout, not unlike the itsy bitsy spider, but he went went up the, the little channel providing water. He slipped in. He took out a few sentries along the way, opened the gate. Come on in, guys, and took the city. I was there way down under the city, at the point where he came out. And it is tiny. The littlest opening, if we're not on guard, can open the doors to the enemy to come in and shipwreck our faith. What are some of these areas that can become openings, ways in for the enemy? I think first and foremost, we have to think about unrepentant sin. Sin that we've begun to live with. Sin that we've kind of said, well, I'll deal with that later. Or maybe I won't deal with it at all. I'm sure God is okay with it. He understands where I'm coming from. After all, Christ died for my sins, so I'll be forgiven. Unrepentant sin, which becomes willful sin, also known as spiritual rebellion. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Hey, that brings me to the second thing that often opens the door to demonic oppression, and that is involvement in the occult. And I'm talking about even dabbling in it. And you say, that seems a little bit weird. You sound like you're you on the satanic panic in the 80s warning me if I use a Ouija board, the devil's going to come into my life. All right, I might sound a little bit weird. So does the New Testament. We got to watch out for any kind of involvement in occult activity. And it's become more and more popular in the church to kind of spin these things together with Jesus language. And say, oh, we can, we can benefit from that. Be very careful. Also, anger bitterness and hatred taking root in fact this one is specifically addressed back in chapter 4 be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil and as we saw maybe a better translation is what we see and i think the niv no foothold for the devil to get his foot in that little spot and now he's climbing up and climbing in what little opening can mean for us is deadly i mean Later on that day, when Ahab and Jehoshaphat were in the battle for Ramoth Gilead, Jehoshaphat's up there in his chariot. He's got his flowing robes. All attention is on him. And then we read that an archer on the Syrian side drew an arrow at random and just fired it into the enemy and went down, hit Ahab exactly where his breastplate had a little gap before his lower armor began, got him probably in the artery in the thigh or something. And he slowly bled out and died a little, little gap in the armor. And that is why we are admonished here to put on the whole armor of God. Not just a bit of it, but the whole thing. Anybody here think that after 12 weeks or whatever, you can tell me all the pieces without looking at your Bible? What do we got here? We got belt of truth. Do we have the truth on? The truth means that we are not believing the devil's lies. We are not believing them even when the culture makes them look harmless and cool. We are not buying into them even when doing so and compromising would make it easier on us. Might make it easier to get by in the workplace or make us less likely to be mocked by the culture. The belt of truth fastened tight because it holds all the rest of it together. What else we got? Don't look there. Breastplate of righteousness. Do You have all your doctrine, your truth all in order and all the points are laid out and you've signed the bottom of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith because that's a really good one. But your life doesn't look any different from the guy in the next cubicle who doesn't know Christ at all. You're leaving a big opening for the enemy. Are you not working out your salvation in fear and trembling, saying to God, help me to mortify the flesh and more and more live a life worthy of my calling, as we saw here in Ephesians 5? If if you are, then you are leaving a big opening. What else we got? Somebody just looked down. I'm not going to say their name, but you know who you are. Look down at your Bible. The helmet of salvation. We're a little out of order. Helmet of salvation. If you're not saved, we're going to talk about this at the end. You're in trouble. The enemy is going to take you down, and you're going to think, I'm a free thinker. I, I have... I've been liberated from the shackles of religion and all this doctrine and stuff, and I'm free, free, free. You're the least free person out there because when you think you're free and you're not, that's the worst situation you can be in. If you think that you're free and the flesh, the world, and the devil are pulling your strings, you've got to repent of that. Turn to Christ. Believe in Him for salvation. What are some other pieces of the armor? Shoes. Yeah, that's what we missed. The the footwear of the gospel, the readiness, the gospel of peace. Are you ready with the gospel? Are you ready to bring the gospel with your beautiful feet? Now, I've got ugly feet, but the scriptures say they're beautiful, even though they're 5E wide. Are you ready to bring the gospel right into any situation where you're going? And I don't just mean that you're the guy who always says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. But you bring the gospel in any situation that you're walking into when you bring God's grace and love into that situation rather than bringing uh, immediately some kind of snarky comment or, oh boy, the preacher's talking to me now. Or some some sense of, of maybe, I, I'm right, you're wrong immediately and let me shut you down. Do you bring the gospel to bear when you walk in with those gospel shoes? Anything else? Shield of faith. It's so easy to let our faith flag down a bit. Now doubt is good and fine. It's part of the Christian life, but to get comfortable in doubt is as dangerous as to get comfortable with anger. It's a dangerous place to be when you get comfortable with your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Believe your beliefs. It's cute, but it's great advice. Don't let that shield, don't put the shield down. Those flaming arrows are coming at you all the time, and you don't see which direction they're coming from. They are just coming. Keep the shield up. Pray for more faith. God answers those prayers. Earnestly pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the the great missionaries of the church, Adoniram Judson, you've heard of him. His whole story starts with great grave doubt and him handing it over to God. If you haven't read his story, read it. Absolutely. We've got um, uh, To the Golden Shore... Ten copies in our in our church library. But keep the faith up. Keep the faith. If we begin to think, well, maybe I don't need to believe this aspect of the faith, once for all handed down to the saints. Maybe this one's outdated. And that one's kind of hard, so I'm going to just not think about that one. But I do like this. This gives me comfort. You're holding your shield down here now. You've barely begun to take it up. Remember the shield of faith is the most important piece of the equipment because he calls it the shield. And if you would ask any Roman legionary, hey, you have to leave either your sword or your shield or your helmet or your breastplate behind, no one would choose the shield. That was how they made the wall to advance the formations that made the Roman army so incredibly effective and efficient. There's one more piece. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if you're not getting into the word, then you don't know how to use it. And if you've ever seen someone try to use a sword that doesn't know how, it's scary. They're more likely to cut themselves up than defeat their enemy if they start trying to swashbuckle without any training. You read about that every once in a while on a Hollywood set, right? Somebody thinks they know what they're doing and they, they get hurt. If you haven't been opening your scriptures, you might be able to put on enough armor to kind of withstand and stand and withstand for a while. But when it comes time to push back and drive the enemy back, You are unarmed. Get your face in your Bible. Get your Bible in your heart. Let's start memorizing Scripture again. This is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the only offensive weapon in the panoply of this armor. Keep all of the armor on. And one thing I want to hammer home as we close up this series is that this armor is Jesus himself this armor is jesus i'm not making this up writing in the fourth century saint jerome said from what we read in this passage and from other things said all through the scriptures concerning the lord savior it most clearly results that by the armor of god the savior is to be understood and what we mean by that is what is the truth christ is the truth he said i'm the way the truth and the life who is our peace christ is our peace Christ is our righteousness imputed to us. Christ is our salvation. That's what his name actually means. Jesus. Christ is the word of God made flesh. And we are saved through faith in him and by his faithfulness, not our own faithfulness. And so when Paul tells us in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, he's teaching the very same thing. Put on the armor and make war. Go in With your armor on. This means war. You got a song in your head now? Petra, late 80s. This means war. It's about spiritual warfare. Nobody else here. Just Jonathan and me. 80s Christian rock. But don't just put on the armor. Once it's on, you've got to fight. You don't want to be spiritually all dressed up with no place to go. Another song from the same album. Get on your knees and fight like a man. It's time to fight when you've got the armor on. And that's why at the end of this passage, he goes right into prayer. And I emphasized last time, this is not a new section. It's not even a new sentence. It's not even a new command. It's a modifier for the one that came before it that said, stand firm, therefore. Prayer is how this stuff gets done. The source of our power in this warfare. Prayer is the powder for our muskets the payload in our missiles, the plutonium of our DeLorean. Martin Luther said, prayer is that mightiest of all weapons that created natures can wield. And we're not talking again about some super exciting, supernatural thriller prayer where we're going toe to toe every day, telling Satan that he's bound and I bind you and stomp on you and all these things. Often what people want to draw out of a passage like this. No, regular prayer. He says, prayer at all times with all alertness and perseverance, all prayers and supplications for all the saints. And he gives us an example. Pray that I'll be boldly speaking. I find that exciting. Paul's adventures throughout the Mediterranean speaking where people think he's a god here and try to kill him over here and he's shipwrecked. But the very idea of just pray for my my speaking ability is kind of mundane. And yet it's war. When you're about to pray... Remind yourself, this is an act of war. It might infuse your prayer life with a little bit more urgency. And when praying becomes difficult, and you say, why can't I focus? Consider, just consider that someone may be opposing you in your prayers. The enemy who is shrewd and crafty and has lots of wiles at his fingertips. And when that happens, turn to your brothers and sisters in arms remember this letter is written not to an individual but to a church to a church and maybe i haven't emphasized that enough as we've looked at this passage about the armor of god and spiritual warfare considering that throughout the book of ephesians we've seen nothing but an emphasis on church unity christian unity between jew and gentile between everyone who bears the name of Christ, they're one in Christ Jesus with him as the head. We tend to think of these things that we read about in Ephesians 6 in very personal terms. And almost everything I've read about it addresses it that way. And that is a valid aspect of it. But we can't limit this to my battle, my struggles, facing my demons, my temptations, so that I'll have my victory. By using a Roman legionary as his example, he has completely banished any idea that this is private, personal stuff exclusively. Remember, they were a cog in a fighting machine, in a war machine. And if you were out by yourself, I got these guys running around like that, You'd probably be thrown out of the army or maybe even executed. No, you, because you, your, your presence in that formation with your shield locked onto his shield and over here, his shield locked onto your shield meant victory or defeat for the Roman army. We've got to remember that this is written to a church. This is written to the church and this is written to every church. This is written to Judson Baptist Church. And we, we've lost, I think, over the ages, the sense that my spiritual life, my spiritual well-being, my battles are part of a bigger battle that involve all of you. What we used to call esprit de corps, right? The notion of us all having together this one spirit of unity and purpose. And I think this was probably easier to have long ago in the early church, even in the, the medieval church, when there was a sense of Catholicity. There was in most places only one Christian church, and now there are so many, and we're so fractured, and and there are pluses and minuses to the state of the church today, but I think a big minus is that we've lost sight of the fact that there is a church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and together we should be fighting the enemy and not taking potshots and fighting each other, so long as it is the actual gospel that is at the core of it all. And by that I don't mean all the footnotes and everything. I mean that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and very God, died on a cross for our sins, rose again for our justification, so that by faith, by grace through faith, we can be saved. You can sign on that dotted line. We better get together and do some battle—not against each other, but like Ramoth Gilead. If Ahab and Jehoshaphat can put their differences aside, so can we and any other Christian church. So can you and any other Christian in your workplace or on your street? We need to start connecting together and locking shields more. That is how we are going to see the church growing. That is what we see wherever historically and whenever the church has grown. This is not just your private battle or my private battle. It's much larger war, light versus darkness, or in the book of Revelation, it's the lamb versus the dragon. And we are entering into that. And so when that's your lens, you stop seeing your problems, your issues, your stumblings as the centerpiece of it all. And you start recognizing that Christ is at the center of it all and his glory. And we are then furthering a much greater cause than ourselves. So stand firm and withstand. That's the command throughout this whole thing. Stand firm. Finally, today, I want to address the question, what if I've already failed to stand? What if I've already fallen? Does it make sense to say, quick, lock the doors against the enemy if he's already on the inside? And I've warned against this kind of uh, duality of thinking of demon possession or demon oppression. Uh, can a demon possess a believer and get inside a believer and control you and make your head spin around and the bed float and all this Hollywood garbage? These are not terms that we find in the scriptures. We find the word demonized. And certainly there are levels of and intensities and degrees of this, it seems. But when you find yourself under a demon oppression, demonic influence, that's a serious thing. And you need to stop and say, if I don't deal with this, it's going to spread like a cancer. This is going to be very problematic and ruinous to my soul. What do I do when I sense that there is something at work in me that is not the Holy Spirit. It is counter to the Spirit, and it is making progress. Well, I have five suggestions for you. First of all, question this. Riddle me this. Is Jesus my Savior? If He's not, repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the cross. Believe in Him. Confess with your lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And now suddenly is a whole different game. We see what happens in the book of Acts, remember, with the sons of Sceva, the high priest, trying to use the name of Jesus as a magic charm to cast out demons. And the demons possessing the guy say, Paul, Jesus, we know those names, but who are you? The guy jumps on them, beats them up, tears their clothes off just to be a jerk, and they run out naked, beaten, and humiliated. That would have been a different encounter had they been saints, had they been saved. Remember what we read in James chapter 4 about the most brief kind of primer you could get on spiritual warfare. Submit to God, therefore, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There it is. I could write a book that's this big on spiritual warfare. It would just have those words in it. But notice that it begins with, submit to God. If we resist the devil on our own strength, by our own swagger, you ever see that that silly, always badly punctuated thing floating around on t-shirts and little uh, memes on, on the internet that says, Satan whispered to me again and again, you can't handle the storm. Today, I looked back at Satan and said, I am the storm. No, you're a dork. But... We don't want to stand on our own two feet by our own strength and say, bring it on, devil. Be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord. Maybe even a more wooden translation and in the power of his might, not your might, not my might, his might. Secondly, dig up any buried sin. You have sin that is unconfessed, hanging out, that you have covered over and forgotten or tried to forget. Remember, I say buried sin because of that passage in uh, Judges, or Joshua rather, when Achan has taken some of the gold that was supposed to be dedicated to God. He's taken some of the Babylonian garments that were supposed to be uh, devoted to God in fire. And he's brought it back to his tent and he's buried it in his tent. And God says, because of this, I am not even going to be with your army. I can't be with you guys. And they had, to, they had to go through this whole process, this whole kind of ceremony to discover who had the, the uh, cursed items, to dig them back up, and then those guys were stoned to death. Hidden sin, buried sin, is going to be an automatic foothold for the devil. Did you ever hear the old story about the guy in the Old West or something where, where he was uh, selling a house, and someone came and offered him half of what he was asking, and he was so offended that he decided to teach the guy. And he said, all right, but you can keep the whole, ho- the whole house, and I'll keep this one nail here. He said, what? He said, yeah, the nail right here in the middle of the house, just in the wall, I can keep that. The guy said, all right, I guess he's trying to save his pride or you know, stick it to me somehow. Oh, sure, you can keep that nail. So said, it has to stay in the wall. All right, yeah, it has- that's your nail, but it'll be my house. He buys the house. The guy walks in the next day. Hangs a dead dog from the nail. And then, of course, over the next couple of weeks, it began to decompose, and eventually the guy said, Fine, take your house back. And then, yes, I think I will. There's, There's laws on the books in our country that if you own a piece of land in the middle of someone else's piece of land, you get to cut a road so that you can access your own land and you don't have to get a helicopter license. If you give Satan just a little bit deep buried inside of you, he will access it and cut a road, chew it, hang a dead dog on it, confess your sins, confess your buried sin, dig it up, hand it to Jesus, and he is faithful and just to cleanse you, to take your sin and cast it into the depths of the sea. John 1, we read, all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Well, Jesus said, if you go on sinning, you're a child of the devil and a slave to sin. Well, we know that what we can do is simply say, that's not me, that's not who I am. Take my sin. I'm a child of God and he will take it. You put your hand to the plow. Jesus said, no one looks back. You look forward. Turn your back to your sin. You can only face one way. Put your back to your sin. Face your savior and, and bow down before him. Thirdly, Cut ties with any occult activity. Destroy any occult objects. And again, people are like, I'm having flashbacks to like guys on TV in the early 90s with their weird, you know, five-button suits like a remote control. And I didn't know. This is not some weird side hobby horse I'm on. We're talking about a letter written about spiritual warfare to a church in Ephesus. Remember what happened in Acts 19 in Ephesus as people started getting saved? A number of those, I'm reading now, I'm quoting, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just like there's two extremes where you either don't believe in the devil or you're obsessed with him in unhealthy interest. The same thing can be true of giving the notion of power to occults and occult activities and occult philosophies. We don't want to fall into the 80s satanic panic where we're playing our records backwards and like, oh, it sounded like Satan, I think. But we also don't want to go the other extreme where we wink at it all. And we say, yeah, it's harmless. No problem. Let me just dabble. We don't want to think of Satan as omnipotent because he's not. But we also don't want to think of him as a cute cartoon because he's certainly is not. Fourth, cut off unholy friendships. I'm talking about the kinds of friendships with people who will drag you back into a life of sin. I was at a Bible study the last uh, three weeks. We were in two verses. Those two verses in First Corinthians uh, chapter 5, which say, have no connection to those who are sexually immoral, who call themselves brothers. And now we talked about that and how there is a little leaven that can take the entire lump down with it and and leaven the whole thing, and and a little bit of sin can go through and work its way through the entire body. And you say, well, hold on a minute. What about ministry? Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Sure, he did, but he didn't get down in there with them and and drink to excess and cheat people. No, Jesus was doing ministry. There's, There's a difference. How do I approach a relationship with someone who is in a life of sin? because take heed those who think they stand lest they fall. Those are the words of scripture. If you think, yeah, I can walk around with these guys and I can go to these same old places that I used to, but now I won't fall. I'm not going to give into it. It's not going to chip away at me. You're giving opportunities to the devil. You think if you go to Sparrow Hospital and go to the COVID floor, you're going to see people just walking around with nothing on their faces? Yeah, hey, how you doing? You know, give me a big cough. I want to listen to your lungs. No, they're like in full PPE gear. They're ministering to you, meaning serving and helping those who are sick, but they're keeping themselves protected from it. They have a different approach to the relationship. And I think that's important and something that we often miss today in our quote-unquote incarnational models of, of ministry. And fifth, put on the armor and Pray. You know you've not been praying when you find yourself under a sense of demonic oppression. Not enough, anyway. And you might say, no, no, I'm always calling out to God to deliver me. All right, do it more and get more people involved. Lock shields. Lock shields. Recognize that the victory is ours and pray in that vein. Not like some hopeless person for whom this is a Hail Mary, pun intended, but that this is a victory that belongs to us. You have the authority here. Aaron and I used to watch this show on Animal Planet called Animal Precinct. And uh, it had these agents of the ASPCA in New York, which most places the ASPCA is just like, you know, really concerned, kind, liberal people who love animals. And they're just like, be nice to your animals. You're like, okay, thanks for saying that. Smile at them. Not in New York. They have badges. They have guns. They have authority. And so when they would show up somewhere where someone was mistreating or abusing an animal, they would walk in there and there was this lady and her name, hold on, I want to get it right, Anne Marie Lucas. And she looked like an Anne Marie. About four foot eleven, blonde hair, beautiful, slight features, and she'd walk in and say, hi, I'm from the ASPCA. And you could see some of these guys, like I've got like nine horses in like a, a cage back here or something, and they can't even turn around, and, and they'd go, oh, you know what? step outside. We, we, don't, we don't want you in here. And, and then they'd, they'd see her put her hand on her gun and they'd see her eyes kind of harden and they'd look at the badge and they'd look at the cuffs and they'd go, oh, I got to do what she says. She has the authority in this situation. And every once in a while, there'd be some poor little animal that had been so mistreated that I would think in the flesh, gosh, I hope they give her some lip. I hope someone thinks that he can get cute with Agent Lucas, and she just takes him down and cuffs him, and, oh, she was awesome. You have the authority here. You might feel like, yeah, I'm just this little fallen, broken... Yeah, you are, but you have the spirit within you. You have the armor upon you. You have... Your badge is your position in Christ. Your sidearm is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In First John 4, The apostle says, little children, you are from God and have overcome these spirits. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. My authority doesn't come from me, but from he who is in me. And recognize Christ has already overcome our enemies. He's overcome the world. He said so much in John 16. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Galatians 6, we find that this extends to us. But far be it from me, Paul writes, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You're just somebody I used to know, world. He's defeated the flesh. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he certainly defeated the devil. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are the same words from Ephesians 6. Above all those adversaries and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Is there any more fitting, more complete, more satisfying visual for absolute victory than putting all things under his feet? feet. This is the victory that Christ has. And therefore, this is the victory that we have. In Luke 10, Jesus said, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and over all the power of the enemy. If we are strong in the Lord, if we, in the words of John 15, abide in him for apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. We will not defeat Satan and crush him under our own feet. Jesus did that. It was promised in Genesis 3.15 at the very beginning, right? Jesus is going to stomp the head of the serpent and it was fulfilled at the cross and at the empty tomb. But we also have a promise in Romans 16.20 that he will crush Satan under our feet and that he will do it soon. That is something God will do. We just need to stand firm in the meantime. This means we are not fighting toward victory in our spiritual warfare. We are fighting from victory unto absolute victory. St. Paul tells us that the days are evil, that our enemy is evil, that even our own hearts left to their own devices are evil. But do not lose hope. For if God be before us, who can be against us? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do confess how often we forget that we are at war how we remember when things take a turn for the difficult, the heartbreaking, the maddening, and then we turn to you in prayer, and then we think about the armor of God. Lord, we pray that it would not take that, that each and every day we would put on the armor, we would get on our knees, we would remember it is an act of war to come to the God of the universe in prayer, that we are breaking down strongholds. Lord, we pray that we would have an approach to this that honors the text itself and would not become sensationalized or somehow us-focused, that, Lord, we would recognize that we are in the midst of a battle and that each of us, like one of those Roman legionaries whose shield was one shield locked to many others, are a cog in a machine. But, Lord, we are also your precious children. You know us. You love us. You know our hearts. You know our fears. You want to hear from us. You want us to be your your. Beloved children, in fellowship with you, we pray that we would draw ourselves near to you in prayer day after day, that we would recognize that letting our faith fall a bit might mean opening ourselves up to the enemy, that we would recognize that taking off or loosening the breastplate of righteousness might mean, like Ahab, taking an arrow between the joints of our armor, that, Lord, you would keep us vigilant, alert, remembering that our enemy, the devil, stalks around like a roaring lion, determining who he should devour. Lord, we know that you have that lion on a leash and we pray that you would give us the victory more day by day, even in our day by day lives, that we would see progress, that we would see that we are not falling victim to these wiles, these shrewd schemes of the devil, that we are rather living lives that are worthy of our calling. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.